Open your Bibles with me, if you would, to 1 Peter. We're continuing our series through the book of 1 Peter this afternoon, and I'm just so thrilled to do so. This study has been an encouragement to my soul already in deep ways. And as we turn a, turn a page here and move into 1 Peter 1, to 25, we're going to see that Peter makes really one central command of us, but it's a really hard one. Peter tells us to love one another. I was actually quite thankful in the, in the opening prayer. Mention was made of the two portions of the Ten Commandments. God tells us in the first half of the Ten Commandments to love Him, to love God. But He tells us in the second half of the Ten Commandments that it is necessary for mankind to love one another, even as we love ourselves. But you know, one of the things I find most problematic in our current day is that we don't quite know what love is. What exactly do we mean when we say, love God? Or, more important for our purposes today, what do we mean when we say, love one another? I thought, This is a good question, and throughout the week I've been meditating on this, knowing that this passage was coming up, and so I thought, where can I turn to find a good answer to this? And so I turned to pop music, (laughs) obviously. And you know, there are two songs that literally are titled, What is Love? Now, I'm sorry, there are some of you who already, you're singing one of those, aren't you? you? You know, it goes on, what is love? Baby, don't hurt me, okay? Uh, and if you've ever been to a ga- sports game or anything, you, you've heard that song. It's, it's quite a popular song. So I looked it up. I thought, all right, well, what exactly does it indicate love is? And though there was a great depth of lyrics, such as, whoa, 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 oh, whoa, whoa, ooh, ooh. <clears throat> and nevertheless, as, as I read through and finally came to the end of the lyrics, I never quite came to an answer. So I looked again, and I found that Jennifer Lopez had recorded a song that had the title, What is Love? But researching the depth of of that as well came to the conclusion that she didn't know what love was either. But one of the things that I recognized in both of those songs, as well as when I turned to Webster's Dictionary, because I, I got a little more serious about my search in terms of what does love mean, I turned to Webster's Dictionary. I said, all right, what does the dictionary say about what love is? And the dictionary helpfully did say that love can be both a verb and a noun. It can speak about what we do, but it can also speak about, uh, perhaps you might say, what we feel or think. And so sometimes used as a verb, it means to cherish or to feel devotion for something or someone. This would be, Bill loves his dog. He feels great devotion to this dog. Or it could mean in an action to like or desire actively. I can speak for my girls here and they would say they love ice cream. They just love it. And if we allowed them, they would eat ice cream every single day. But we're better parents than that. And so every other day it has to be. (laughs) My my father-in-law made the mistake once of saying, to his grandchildren, every time you come over, you can have ice cream, and they've never forgotten it. But sometimes the word is used as a noun. It refers to strong affection for another. For instance, Mary 
may uh, love someone else. It can refer to an object of attachment. But one of the things I found striking and interesting about all the definitions of love in uh, Webster's Dictionary is that only one of them, and it was listed as a minor variant definition, actually fits what the scriptures say about love. So this morning, this afternoon, I'm sorry, this afternoon, what we'd like to do is we'd like to work through three questions as we look at the passage that lies before us. We want to ask the question, what exactly is love, according to Peter? Because Peter tells us to love, so what exactly does that mean? Second, we need to address the question, why should we do this? Uh, we're going to find out that love is not easy. It's a painful and hard experience often. And there are some loves that come easily, but there are some that do not. And Peter's commanding us to do all of it. So why should we do this? And then the third question we want to tackle from this passage is, how should we? So if the scripture tells us we must, then we need to answer, why should we? And then how exactly are we going to fulfill the command that's given to us in this text? So I'd like to read the passage and then work through it. So if you're in 1 Peter, we're going to look in verses 22 through 25. Peter says this, Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another. There's the command. Love one another earnestly from a pure heart since you've been born again. Not of perishable seed, but of imperishable seed through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass. All its glory like the flower of the grass, the grass withers, the flower falls. But the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. Again, note there, Peter's central command is love one another. In fact, if we were to put this contextually in the passage, here's what Peter's done so far. He's established our elect exile identity indicating all of the blessings and glories that come along with it. And then if you'll remember, in the last couple of weeks, we talked about the commands that he then gives to us. You can see it beginning in verse 13. He says, the first thing we have to do is orientate our mind to what really matters, and that is the coming of the Lord Jesus. And then he says the second thing we have to do is we have to abandon our former way of life. Third thing he says we have to do is we have to live in reverent awe of the God who saved us. This is the fourth and final thing that Peter is going to tell us to do within this context. And the fourth and final thing is in some ways the pinnacle, at least in reference to each other. Probably the third is the pinnacle in reference to God, fear him. But the fourth is the pinnacle in reference to what we are required to do amongst each other. And Peter says, love one another. So, according to Scripture, what does it mean to love? Well, I'm going to suggest three things that Scripture indicates, and the first comes directly from this passage. And I note this. Love is this. Love is the natural response of the purified soul. Now, you're going to have to stick with me for a minute, because I know that's a long phrase. But think, think with me through this. Love is the natural response of the purified soul. Where am I getting that from? You can see it in verse 22. He says this, 
having purified your souls, so this is a past thing, this is something that's happened to you at your new birth, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love. And here's essentially what Peter's doing. He says, you obeyed the truth. What truth was that? What, what did you obey? Well, he's going to tell us down in verse uh, 25, or actually verse 23, he says, you've been born again through the living and abiding word of God. He says down in verse 25, this good news is that which was preached to you. What Peter's saying here is, you were told the truth and you obeyed it, which led to a purification of soul. Notice again, verse 22, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth. Now, let me pause there and answer a question that may have popped up in your mind. Maybe you look at this and you say, no, wait a second. I didn't obey the truth and purify my soul. Did I? The purification of my soul wasn't my act. It was the very act of God. And I'm going to agree with you. But here's what Scripture consistently indicates. That when God transforms a heart, that heart really is transformed. When the new birth comes, the new birth brings with it new actions and obedience to the truth. And that obedience to the truth prepares us to be vessels useful in the master's service. And not, it's not as though Peter is disagreeing with me here, because again, you'll notice in verse 23, he says, since you have been born again. Now, a number of weeks ago, we talked about the passage where Peter began talking about the concept of the new birth, and we made the analogy, it's as applicable here as it was there, now, part of the reason that the new birth is used by Jesus and the other apostles as an illustration is because of how potent it is. As we think about our physical birth, that's the analogy, our physical birth. How many of us can take credit for having been born? And the answer is rather clear, isn't it? I didn't have a choice in the matter. I was born, and that's just the, just, just the way it was. And in the same way, we shouldn't look at this and say, okay, so what Peter's saying is my heart was purified by my obedience to the truth and I did that. No, here's what God did. He changed you so that you were obedient to the truth so that you'd be purified. You see, we're only useful to the Lord to the degree that he has changed us. The, the language of purification is an interesting one, isn't it? Uh, because if you look back in, through the book of Leviticus, and I know you guys have studied the book of Leviticus, you know that it's so much about the purification of, of worship vessels and other things. And the idea is that it needs to be purified to be useful in God's service. It needs to be cleansed. And so what it's saying is that God has through your obedience to his truth that he brought in you by means of the new birth, he has purified you. Now, I want you to notice what that purification does, according to this passage. It produces love in you. Again, I'm, I'm just stating what verse 22 says. He says, so 
having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth. So obedience to the truth leads to the purification of the soul. And then notice this next line, for a sincere brotherly love. Now, you could, you could substitute the word that, for there uh, for something like, and by your obedience to the truth, you have been granted a sincere brotherly love. You see, this purification does something distinct within the human heart. It gives us brotherly love. To put this another way, the new birth inevitably comes with it, a love for the brethren, a love for those within the family of God. And so, following through here, what is love? Peter says love is the natural response of the purified soul. Natural here then being, once we've been born again, love is natural to us. Now, is love natural to humanity? Now, there are a lot of people in our world today who want to say man is essentially good. Man is essentially naturally loving. That's just how man is. And I understand why they say that. Because in our redeemed state and in our unfallen state, that is precisely what we were made to be. And part of what God is doing in redemption is making a people recommitted to his original creational status. And so, so many people say, well, man is loving. Well, man was loving and man can be loving, but man is broken. And that brokenness means very often he is not loving. But praise be to God, he mends people. He changes them. By obedience to the truth, he purifies their soul so that they would love the family. So what is love? It's a natural response of a purified soul. Now you might say, well, that doesn't quite answer all of the questions about what I have about what is love. So let's continue. And think about two other things that love is. I'll say this, love is a distinctive mark of Christians. This follows through with what I was just saying. It is the product of God's grace in our lives that we become lovers. Do I just get that from this passage? The answer to that is no. Look with me in John 13, 34. Here are the very words of Jesus as he's explaining love to his disciples. He says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. And then some of the most frightening, or some of the most challenging words, maybe not frightening, some of the most challenging words you'll read, just as I have loved you. We'll come back to that. Love one another, just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, that is, by your love for one another, the love in this assembly right here, the love between saints, by this love, all people will know that you are my disciples. That is, if you have love for one another. Do you know what Jesus is saying? He's saying that you should be able to go into a city and a town and you should be able to discern the assemblies of God's people. There there should be a distinct distinct mark, not a badge they wear, 
not a certain type of hat or a certain type of style of clothing. It's not as though there's something immediately you see and you say, oh, okay, there it is. But when you get to know them, when you get to know the congregation, when you see their families and you see the bigger church family, there is something distinctive about genuinely redeemed people. They love one another. This is the distinctive mark of God's people. Indeed, Jesus goes on in 1 John chapter 3, uh, a different book, John 13, was the gospel of 1 John 3. John says this, how do we know that we passed from life to death? How can you tell that your heart has been redeemed, that you've gone through the process of new birth? Here's what he's answering. We know that we've passed from death to life because we love each other. Anyone who doesn't love remains in death. And anyone who hates a brother or sister is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life residing in him. And Jesus here says, do you want the distinctive mark? Do you, do you want a way to even self-evaluate where you're at? Then, then here's a question you have to ask and answer. Do I love the brethren? Do I love the family of God? And he says that's the distinctive mark. Whoever hates his brother clearly doesn't have it. He, he goes on, and of course, he says those who murder obviously have hate in their heart, but, but he goes on. And he says this in verse 17, if anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need but has no pity on them, well, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. John's point is that love is not an emotion. Love is not an emotion. Do you see that very last line there? Because I think what he's pushing up against is what James talks about in James chapter 2. James says, you tell me you have faith. But when a brother comes and he has need, and you have the resources to help that brother in need, and you say, oh, that's a horrible situation. Be warmed and filled. And you give nothing to that need. Then James asks, how can there be love in your heart? You see, love isn't just, boy, I really feel something. Love is an action. You see, that's why he says, dear children, let us not love with words or speech. Because it's easy to say, isn't it? Isn't it easy to say, I love you? That's pretty easy words. It's a lot harder to show it by our actions. So, again, you might say, all right. Love is the natural response of a purified soul. Love is, as you've shown us, the distinctive mark of Christians, but you still haven't quite answered my question, what is love? And that's what I want to get to in this third part. I think this is the very definition of love, and I'll show you why. Love is self-sacrifice for the sake of someone else. Self-sacrifice for the sake of someone else. Love is 
putting my needs second for the needs of someone else. It's an action. And so all of the ways in which our culture defines love, uh, you, you know, you hear this very often. Well, we got married and uh, then we fell out of love. And I want to say, well, you fell out of obedience. Because Scripture calls us to love as an action. And yes, hopefully, sometimes feelings follow that. But there are some times where the feelings are really difficult. And yet, we are called to love. Uh, perhaps you might say, as a little boy, I saw a video clip of just recently. As I was preparing for this, I, I was looking for the phrase... I love you, but I don't like you, all right? And there's a sense in which I could see how that could be true. There are times where I may not really like something or someone in a particular situation, but I can still sacrifice for their sake. I can still love them. And this little boy was talking to his mom. He was four years old, maybe five years old, if, if I gauged by my eye well. You can look this one up on YouTube if you'd like. But he says to his mom, Mom, I like when you give me cookies. She said, okay. And, in, and then she said, well, I love you. And he responded, okay, well, I love you too, but I don't like you all the time. Unless you give me cookies. <laughs> That's not quite what I'm getting after here, but his point is, I think well taken, there is a distinction between love and like, because love is act. And often what we need, to, we need to do is even when we don't feel like it, even when our feelings are lagging behind, do the loving thing and ask God to change your heart. So love is self-sacrifice. You say, now how do you defend that claim? Here's a couple of quotations from Jesus. Again, John, John loves to talk about love, so that's why we keep going back to him. John's telling us how Jesus loved us. It says, before the feast of Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. As we think about what Jesus did, it wasn't that Jesus felt good feelings about them till the end. Though I imagine that probably was the case. You know what it meant that he loved them to the end? It meant that he remained on the cross when everything in his human body screamed at him, use your power, <laughs> get off this cross. And what did it mean that he loved his own who were in the world while he lived among them? It meant he served them. And we'll talk about more about how Jesus loved us in just a moment. But I think that, that highlights it. But my favorite passage on this comes from not John 3.16, but 1 John 3.16. And this is the very definition of love according to Scripture. By this, we know love. In other words, John is saying, do you want to know what love is? Do you want a definition of love? Here it is. By this, we know love. That he, that is Jesus, laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives 
for the family of God. Do you see what he's saying here? Here's love. And, and Jesus puts it this way, greater love hath no man than this, that a man laid down his life for his friends. Because what is laying down your life, at least in this age? It's giving up everything you have in this life. It's the ultimate sacrifice for someone else. And so Jesus says, here's how we know what love is. Or here's what John says. Here's how we know what love is. If you want the definition of love, here it is. Jesus on a cross. And why is Jesus the sacrifice? Why isn't it uh, some of our veterans who fought in wars? Though I'm not denigrating their love, they didn't come from the heavenly sphere and give up all that Jesus did in order to, to live in this life in humility and suffer on a cross the way that he did. You see, he went from a the highest point of ascendancy you could ever imagine to the lowest point you could ever imagine. And he did it for the sake of other people. Now, I think Scripture does indicate to us that Jesus did receive rewards for it, but I wonder if it was worth it. <laughs> In the sense that he sacrificed greatly for the sake of us. And that is the very definition of love. So, if we ask the question, what is love? Love is the believer's natural response to God's Spirit, who distinctively reforms His people to live outwardly and self-sacrificially. This is why Jesus can say, here's how people know that you're my disciples. Here's how you can know that you're my disciple. Do you love one another? And love isn't merely Boy, I really feel good about those people there in Belleville. This is just great. Redemption Bible Church, I just feel really great about people. No, it's the question, how am I sacrificing for the good of my brothers and sisters in this room? That's the question Peter wants us to address because he says, in light of your redemption, here's what we have to do. Love one another. Now, I mentioned that we were going to answer three questions. And the first was, uh, what is love? The second is, why should we love? And Peter's first answer to this really comes in verse 22, and we've already been pouring over it. He says, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for the production of love, then love one another. So why should we do it? Because we can and we should. But notice this, notice this. Peter is making a command of us. And do you know what this suggests? That it's something we've got to actively pursue. Now, in one sense, we might think that this is a bit contradictory. Because I've just made much of the fact that God's Spirit changes us. And one of the things the Spirit does when He changes us is makes us lovers. So if that's the case then all I need to do is kick back in my sofa, and it's just going to happen, right? Yeah, that's not what Scripture tells us. And probably that's not what your own experience has told you. You know that this has to be an active love. We've got to get out of our sofa. We've got to think about how can I set aside my own desires, wants, and needs for the sake of the desires, wants, and needs of God's people. The first reason we ought to do this is because God reformed you in order to do it. That is, God sent his son into this world to purify you so that you would be lovers of one another. 
And that has a number of factors involved in it. You become God's hands in this world. You really are God's hands in this world. God could have chosen various ways in which he was going to engage this world. But here's what he did instead. He said, instead of me actively going into the world and doing it all myself, I'm going to send my son to die for their sins so that they can be purified. I'm going to send my spirit into them so that they would become lovers. And now they will be my hands. Millions and millions of hands across this globe. You are a pair of those hands. How are you loving your brothers and sisters? So the first reason Peter gives us is because this is why God redeemed you. Second reason, because we've been born again by an imperishable seed. Now you'll notice this in verse 23. You see the word since that begins the sentence, and that gives us a reason why we ought to do this. Why should we love one another earnestly from a pure heart? Because you've been born again. And this new birth was not because of an in, uh, a perishable seed, but of an imperishable seed. And I think the point Peter is making is this, that There are temporal things in this life, and there are things that will remain afterwards. He's already talked about the fact that gold and silver will not endure. They're going to fade. Gold will be destroyed. All the things of this earth will fade. But he says there are some things that continue on forever. And here's what he says about us. That new birth planted an eternal seed in our hearts. You know, one of the things you probably will never find me planting are annual seeds. Annual seeds are the things that only come up once and then you got to do it again. I'm just, I'm, I'm not that patient. I want to plant something that's going to stay there for a long time. And every year is just going to keep coming back up, keep coming back up because I like that. Boy, what if you had an eternal seed? Something that could just endure forever. What value would you put on that seed? This is what Jesus is saying to us through Peter. He's saying, you have been born again, not of a perishable seed, but imperishable. So love is something that will endure forever. If you were to give yourself to the labor of something, what should you give yourself to? Here's Peter's answer. You should give yourself to love because love is the product of an eternal seed within your heart. And whatever is produced because of love will endure through the ages. And whatever else we give ourselves to, not that it's necessarily bad. And you can go and you can enjoy life. You can do all those things. But just know that those things will not last forever. So there are things we ought to give ourselves to. And he uses this analogy. He makes this comparison. We read it here in verses, verse 24. He says, for, here's the reason why the living and abiding word of God, this word that is life-giving, that abides forever, has given to us this life so that we would abide forever. But then he says, but all flesh is like grass. All of humanity is like grass. 
all its glory like the flower of the grass. The grass withers, the flower falls, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Just the other day, I was at a, at a, at a, at a house, and I went into the backyard, and I was surprised, shocked by what I saw. I had, and, and this just probably tells you how little I look at plants and things, but there was this sunflower that was in full bloom. Just one of them, but it was in the middle of this garden, and it just was there in its glory. And I just looked at it and said, man, that's cool. That's awesome. Two days later, I came into that back, same backyard, and I'm like, oh, man, this is going to be cool. And I walk around the corner, and guess what I see? Some squirrel, I think, had defiled this thing. <laughs> it was collapsed. It was ripped to shreds. And I thought, boy, what, a, what an analogy of what Peter is saying here. All of flesh, all of humanity, we're like the flower that's in the grass. And it pops up one day. And it's glorious. It's beautiful. Uh, we've got some roses that are right by our house. And they, they pop out and it's great for a couple of weeks. And then they just die. And there's nothing you can do about it. It's a moment. It's fleeting. And Peter's saying, do you want to invest in that which is fleeting? Or that which is eternal? And I trust you understand the answer that we should be seeking. So we are addressing three questions. What is love? Love is self-sacrifice produced by the Spirit in our hearts. Why should we love? Because this is why God redeemed us. Because it is an eternal thing that will last and give us an inheritance in the heavenly places. But the third question we need to address is how are we to love? How should we love? And Peter actually gives us three things that I want to draw your attention to in this text. The first is this, we should love fervently. You'll notice this in verse 22. He says, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly or fervently. Love one another with passion. I've put up here an image of someone, and you may not know what that is, but he's sweating because it's taking energy. It's taking strength to accomplish this. Let me simply say that you cannot love someone in a relaxed state. If it comes exceptionally easy for you, it may be love, but it's not the most sacrificial love. The hard things in life, the things that are really valuable are difficult. They're challenging. And here's what Peter's saying. Love one another with sweat on your brows. Challenge yourself to say, how can I love the brothers and sisters of my assembly? So love one another fervently. Second thing he says, love one another heartily. It's actually hard to see in the, King J or in the uh, ESV here. If you've got the NIV, you can see it a little bit easier. But when he says love one another earnestly from a pure heart, he's actually saying love one another earnestly from the heart. That is, this should be motivated 
by the heart. You should care for one another. Earlier I mentioned that I do think that love is an action more than a, than a heart, uh, a feeling. But the best love is one that combines both. And there are times where we might ask the question, well, how could I do that? I'm not, I can't love in that way. I, I can act rightly towards someone, but the heart isn't there. And I'll give you the advice that I was given a long time ago. Somebody said it's really hard to continue to dislike someone you pray fervently for. And I think there's a lot of truth in that. Maybe I could put it another way. It's very hard to continue disliking someone whom you pour your fervent love into week after week. God begins to form in your heart a heart attitude that comes alongside. So we should strive for that, even if it's not easy. Love from the heart. And finally, he says to love sincerely. We see this in the middle of 22. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love. We are not play acting. We're not putting on a mask and acting as though we love someone else to get something from them. No, we literally are self-sacrificing. We have no ulterior motives. We don't think, you know, if I do this, well, maybe they'll do this for me. Instead, we say, God has called me to self-sacrifice for the sake of my brothers and sisters. And how can I do that? And, you know, it's really hard. Really, really hard for me to illustrate this for you because the fact is in this auditorium right now, however many people we have here, 175 or so, I don't know, there are 175 different answers to this question. Each of you have been gifted in different ways and you have different opportunities, but God calls you to work hard and labor at looking at your congregation, looking at the people here and asking the question, how might I love them? Do you remember that little phrase we read a little bit earlier? Jesus said, love as I have loved you. I want you to think about that here for just a moment. Let that be a motivation for us. Do you recall? Elsewhere, Peter says, follow in the footsteps of Jesus. And may I encourage you to follow in the footsteps of Jesus. Just think through these things with us. When Jesus came to this earth, did he love us fervently? Oh, my friend. He left the glorious throne in heaven. He left the adoration of the angelic beings. He was born in a cow's trough. He was born to a relatively poor family. He grew up in anonymity. He had the weaknesses of humanity. He endured all of that, and as he grew, he was rejected by men. He was spit upon. He was beaten. He was mocked, and he took it all. Why? Why were there great sweat drops coming down from our Savior's face as he labored over the decision that he had to make to follow the Father's will in the garden. Was his love not a fervent love that cost him greatly? 
And we know the answer is yes. Was it not a love that came directly from our Savior's heart? Can we not say that God loved us, Christ loved us? And here's the language that I think we need to grasp. For while we were still sinners, while we were weak, while we were ungodly, while we were unlovely, Christ loved us. I can't imagine in a congregation like this, there aren't some people that, you know, kind of rub you wrong. And you might say, well, they're maybe a little unlovely. Not as much as you were to Christ. But He loved you from His heart. And He loved you sincerely. He made the sacrifice. There was no duplicity. He was not going to get something from you that He desired from you. He did it simply for your good. As we look at the example of Jesus, we are called to an incredibly high calling. Jesus says this, Love as I have loved you. Father, thank you so much that you have not just given to us a command like that and left us to ourselves. You would never do that. Instead, you have given to us a command and then given to us the very Spirit of God, your Spirit, so that we could obey it. Father, I don't know in this congregation how this needs to hit home with these people who sit before me. But I do know this, I need it. And I imagine many of your people do. Oh, Father, make us uncomfortable. Help us to sacrifice in this life, knowing that it's worth it for the life to come. Help us to think of the needs of our brothers and sisters as more important than our needs because your son did it for us. Help us then to love as Christ loved us. Amen.